Welcome to First Lady and Friends. I recently had the opportunity to participate in the fall One Utah Summit in Cedar City. The One Utah Summit is an incredible rural event that we hold each year. It's a place where Utah's top leaders and decision makers in rural Utah come together to discuss the factors impacting the economic outlook of our rural communities. While we were there, my husband and I had a great opportunity to have a fun discussion with the NFL Hall of Fame quarterback, Steve Young. I was a huge fan of his growing up, so I was so excited to be able to talk with him. He was even better in person than I could have imagined. It was fun. It's so fun when you get to meet your heroes and they stand up to the hype. I hope you enjoy the recording of our discussion here on First Lady and Friends. Let's get proximate. It always is. I get that a lot. I, I will tell you, the first day we're down here, they're like, where's that? And so we're, we're really That's happy. Good. I made it. I said, I'm like, good to see you. Where's that? That's how it goes. <laughs> hey, uh, welcome back. You've spent a lot of time here. I have. I was like, uh, talk about that. Yeah, my son, my oldest son, Raiden, uh, found out in 10th grade that he could sing, which we didn't know, which we don't know where it came Did from. Did he come from you? He was wondering if he got adopted. Um, but he can sing and he can act. And so he went to college at Manhattan School of Music as a music theater major and tried out uh, cold for the Utah Shakespeare Festival two years ago and got a spot, which is really big for a kid in school. And then he graduated and then he tried again. And this year he was a paid actor off the books. He was uh, uh, for a little while for the family. He's on his own. And so he was here. So we kept coming back and forth to see the plays and joined the Shakespeare Festival, and Minnie Benson has been a friend of mine for a year, President Benson for years, uh, you know, and the Shakespeare Festival, I've never been. And now I can't stop and be like, let's go again, let's go again. We just love coming to Cedar, so it's become a thing. Absolutely. It really is incredible. Congratulations to your son. That's yeah, it's fun. We're excited. Yeah. So before we jump into the, uh, the, the questions, uh, though, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your book. Um, hopefully many of you have had a chance to read it. Uh, you wrote an interesting book. You, you've written before, written about your career. This is a little different, right? I mean, this big, tough football player, first lefty in the Hall of Fame, uh, and, and you're writing about the law of love. And, and it's I, odd, right? It just doesn't love you. No, it's incredible, but, about. but talk about that. It's a journey, uh, like all of us are in a journey of just trying to figure out our way forward and for me and, and my um, family uh, it became kind of a quest to see what what mattered most uh, the truest truth there's a lot of truths I think that uh, we recognize but what's the truest truth what's the thing that lasts forever what is everlasting what is perpetual what um, uh, what are the conditions of perpetual places we, talk, we know this is not perpetual. I looked in the mirror, and I, it ain't happening. So I know that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not perpetual today. And this, you know, we, we're, the experience we have today is we know that things don't last. But we believe in an idea, or I have a theology, my theology is there is a perpetual place. And what would govern that perpetual place? And it has to be selfless love, it has to, or else it would rot in self-interest. And so that's what came to me as a kind of clear clarion call for how I want to live my life and how I want to see other people. And, uh, and so I didn't mean to write a book. I just, I taught gospel doctrine for years at church and 
And um, and finally, one of the people in my class said, Steve, you know, you keep, you know, no matter what the lesson is for 10, 15 years, it feels like it ends up in the same place all the time. You should probably write all this down. And uh, and I decided that I would write it down. And um, I didn't mean to write a book. I just meant to make sure that I had it in one place so I could give it to my kids and my family because that's what mattered. Like, I wanted to make that influence on them and then, you know, and inevitably a book comes out and then here we are. So I don't, I don't, I, it's not intentional that you would read it, but if you do, I, I, I would love to chew on it with you. I think it's a concept that is, um, I always say the law of love is undefeated. It's the headwaters for all perpetual places, which I want to be a part of. And how do I, what are those conditions? What are the, you know, so much of life is being asked to do things. What should I do? How do I get the gain? How do I get the credit? How do I, how do I, you know, become great at anything that I want to do? Well, there's things to do. And, uh, and this is a situation where it's nothing to do. It's just things to be and uh, qualities to be. And I always say there's four kind of power qualities of the law of love, and that is um, gentle persuasion, meekness, um, long-suffering, and love. And so those, what are, what is the, what are the, what's the language of those words? What's the language, uh, what's the actions? What's the state of being for those words? And that's kind of, instead of what I need to do, what I need to be. And that's, that's a long, you started now winding up, I'll keep going, <laughs> but I'll, I'll stop there. No, no, and, and, and this is so important, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you, you, you're, you're sharing this piece of your By story. the way, I just realized at the top of the pile is some pink sock. It's, it's, nice. it's a good one. It's a really good one. It's a this morning. <laughs> so, I was like, Steve just landed at the airport. Oh, we brought yeah. him right under, over here. Shock. It's a great looking sock. My sock here is A right now. <laughs> Some symbolism there, I'm sure. But I, I was going to say, thanks for dispelling the myth of the, uh, by writing this book, of, of kind of the, the, you know, the, the tough, dumb football player. Uh, there's well, more yeah, there. there's and then the socks are also <laughs> dispelling. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't want to wake up my wife this morning. It's four in the morning. You know, you just grab what's at the top of the pile. <laughs> but, but, but thank you for writing this book. <laughs> thank you for giving us something to talk about. Oh, the shirt was blue. <laughs> it the pants are blue. We're close. We're close. <laughs> Abby right. dresses me every day. So that's I didn't know we were going wardrobe and fit choices, so I, li I like it. I like where this is going. You know, I, I, I just recently saw a, a story where you were um, coaching girls flag football, which, first of all, I kind of want to cry and, and because I, I, I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to cry probably for different the reasons same, than no, you do. Same oh, good. I, okay. I want to talk about it because it has been. Yeah, well, that, that article in The Athletic, um, the case, by the way, you should read the article in The Athletic, came out just a couple days ago about, about this and, and well, about. Yeah, well, first of all, um, I love football. Uh, I love football. I, I was taught football by my dad um, and uh, my grandpa, and we watched you play. We watched, um, I mean, just a, an absolute hero. And we, uh, every chance we got growing up on my, our family farm, I mean, eight girls, two boys, we uh, played football. We ran past patterns in the field. Uh, after the hay was cut. Um, this is what we, I grew up doing, so I, sorry, I'm looking at you and I'm gonna start crying. Um, 
I love football, and and so I love that you're you're coaching your girls. Um, if they had flag football when I was young, I would have played flag football. Um, so I love that you're you're coaching the girls. I love that you're playing this. I love that you're passing down these these laws. I've I've played a lot of sports. I played a lot of basketball, um, and what I've seen is that there can be some there can be some conflict. Um, in these coaching situations. And you, you see, especially I think in small towns when everybody knows everybody and, and we're mad at the coach and my kid's not getting them enough playing time and there's conflict in that locker room. Talk maybe a little bit about, first of all, your experience with these girls and second of all, like how are you addressing maybe some of that conflict and, and um, how these girls, you're teaching the girls the, the lessons of life, not just football. So I was asked, a good friend of mine was the coach the first year that the state of California now has it in high school, and about probably 25% of the high schools started in year one. This is year one. There's a number of other school states that are doing it. I think it's in Utah. I think in the high school that they have girls' flag football, but not very many. And uh, so the first year, the coach said, you want to come over? Your girls are going to be playing. You want to come over and help? And I said, sure, that'd be fun. And plus, my girls wanted to play football. And so that was going to be a connection that we haven't really talked about. Our home is you know, music theater, and my wife is, uh, one of the reasons I was attracted to my wife is that she didn't really like football that much, and so <laughs> football doesn't rule our house. And so um, to have that back was, for me, was kind of fun, and so I went to the first practice, and that's where I teared up, because I realized that there was this group of girls, first of all, 35 girls came out from the school that they expected 10, and we had to do two teams, and we were just overwhelmed with the numbers, but it was the spirit of how it felt for them to be able to play the game that they had watched their whole lives. It's America's game, we can argue that back and forth, but in the end, it's, it's kind of America's game. And they had watched it, they watched their brothers play. They'd been in the hayfield and they'd run around, but they never got to play. And the feeling of inclusivity that they could now play, I was overwhelmed by. I went home and just, Wow, I just, because I'd taken it, I didn't play football since I was, couldn't breathe. And it was, I never even had an appreciation. I knew I loved the game, but I never had an appreciation of what it would be like if I couldn't play. And to have these girls feel like it's, I'm running routes, I'm throwing the ball. And then the first couple of practices, I was working with the quarterbacks, and they were like, how do I hold the ball? I'm like, huh, I don't know. Let me, I gotta think about that. For a second. <laughs> You know? And then, uh, how, where do I look? You know, because I'm, I'm watching everybody and it looks like I see nothing. And I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. No, just pick one person and pick before they snap the ball, pick that person and watch them and then throw them the ball. And then do that over and over. And then as you do that, as you focus on one person, you'll start to see other things in your peripheral vision. And then you'll be able to start, and then the, the revelation as they started to think, oh, this is how you throw it. And to have them throw it, you know, because you throw a football differently than you think you do. And when you kind of get the right technique, you can really whip it. And these girls were like throwing it really well. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then I'm like, I'm teaching them where to look. And, and then we had a pass play. And, and uh, Ava's the ninth grader, this really little star quarterback, and she's running around and she threw it. And I go, Ava. You know that you can't. That's no. That's nowhere to throw it. Like that's dangerous. Like that's. She goes, yeah, but it's a pass play. 
And I'm like, oh, you, you think you have to pass it because it's a passport? She goes, yeah, it's a passport. I gotta pass it. I'm like, oh no, Ava, I'm sorry I didn't explain that to you. You don't have to pass it. She's like, oh my gosh, that's so relieving. And I can, well, it. girls are so nothing if not uh, very coachable. Like it's like, you don't realize the game and going back to its roots and how it felt for me to go back to those very first times I grabbed the ball, and the first times that I called a play, the first time that I tried to figure out who was open, and the first time that I learned that a pass play doesn't mean you have to throw it. And then just the, the spirit of what that excitement is, and now we're three or four weeks in, and they've got it all figured out. And the, I want to say that the, about the third day, we were showing the line of scrimmage, showing how you line up in formation, how the formation and the play are different, and you can have different ways to do it. And then we um, told them that on the snap count, you could go, ready, set, hot, hot. You could go on two or three or four. And the girl's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And so they started going five, and let's go on eight. You know? <laughs> But what was amazing about it, and this goes back to girls versus boys, and I'm just saying my personal anecdotal experience is that I spent 15 years as a professional trying to get my guys to go on two, you know? And we'd remind ourselves the whole way up to the last going on two, going on two, going on two, remember two, and then we'd go off sides because we couldn't figure out how to wait for two. And the girls, in five seconds, were like, let's go on eight, you know? And no way twins. You know, it's just that I'm telling you, my anecdotal experience, they're different. And, uh, and they're way easier to coach. So anyway, I have a lot of emotion about it. It has been something that has continued to flow over the last three or four weeks. Yesterday was another, we played a team and my daughter dropped a pass that could have won the game. And, and I had to explain to her how I was once played in the, Coles, the LA Coliseum in front of 100,000 people against the LA Raiders at the time. And, um, we were down by a couple points, and the last play of the game, I was desperate running around, and I was desperate to I replace Joe Montana, so I needed to play well, and we were gonna lose, and I had to figure out a way to win, and I'm running around the last seconds, and looking for someone to throw the ball to to save the game, and I got sacked, and we lose. And then we watched the film the next day. Jerry Rice, my receiver, is in the end zone, waving his arms like this, <laughs> all alone. And I think the, re the regret I felt that if I would have just seen him, my life would be so different. You know? It's so much better. I'm telling her, the feeling you have right now is a precious feeling to work through it and to recognize that, oh, if I only would have or could have caught that, what that would have done and what would, I would have been the hero and just going through that is something that you just can't teach other than going through it and experiential. So anyway, long, Answer to Abby, just you and I, we're on this together. It is, the next year, they're going to get good. And they're going to know what they're doing, and they'll beat the boys at flag football. You know, they'll beat them because they'll go on eight. And <laughs> the boys will be good. Offsides every play. Offsides every play. I, I love it, and we're so proud of you. By, by the way, I'm the most amazing oh. wife in the world. I know, she's great. I, I, mean, well, I didn't even answer your question about conflict. Okay. No, well, I, just have to, I just have to say, um, when we got married, um, so we had this rule in our house that we couldn't watch TV on Sunday, which I broke all the time because we love football. What's the best? Uh, if it's the 49ers, it's, it's 
the 40 That's totally fine. But what, what, was great, <laughs> what was great about it was when I married Abby, she's like, oh, we had a rule in our house that we could only watch TV on Sunday. Because <laughs> uh, that's when the football games were on. <laughs> and um, I, I soon realized I had married a woman who knew what a cover two was. Uh, she, could, she could call out the plays before they were happening. It. And it, was, it, it made my life so much better. <laughs> but uh, conflict, let's talk about conflict in, in, so, yeah. in the locker room and uh, your, your career. Whew. Uh, conflict is inevitable. Conflict is um, an opportunity. And I think that's the key, is to recognize how when things are divisive or strained, that there's, in those, in those moments, there's opportunity. And I think that's fundamental to how you see conflict. Because if conflict doesn't seem, isn't that seen that way, you end up kind of on different sides and somebody wins and somebody loses and somebody's right or someone's wrong. And, um, but in the opportunity in conflict, especially in the locker room, the locker room is a uh, dynamic place. It's a tough place. Um, I know you don't, uh, it's, but it's also a place where it needs to be self-policed. If the coach has to come in and resolve conflict, you're not gonna be as good a team. You have to be able to deal with it yourselves and find the solutions. If, if, you know, if you have to be parented as adults in a, in a, in a game like that, um, you got problems. And, and more problems than just that conflict. Yeah. And so I think conflict is an opportunity. It's an, a, a place to um, try to lose yourself a little bit and try to get out of your, your, you know, your truth to you and find out what other people's truth is because most of the time, the conflict is around a you know, difference in opinion about something, and uh, or something that's happened. A lot, a lot of the conflict in our in our uh, locker rooms were when we lost. Conflict is not is pretty unusual when you win. You know, <laughs> it's like you win, and it's like all all conflicts go away. Like, <laughs> you have a conflict? Too bad. We won. You're fine. Um, but when you lose and things are harder, uh, that's when it really starts to come forward. And um, I think that the locker rooms that are the best at solving conflicts are the ones that win, regardless of what play you call, regardless of what defense you call, regardless of really who's on the field. Um, uh, the great locker rooms that self-police and that can solve conflicts uh, regularly, um, not easily, but regularly, are the winners. They're the guys that, the, the teams that win. And uh, there's a real talent to it. And the talent is to make sure, number one, that the leaders of that locker room, and there's always leaders, uh, that they're accountable. The leaders are never full of mitigation. If the leadership in the locker room are trying to list all the things that are wrong with the situation, and they're not the ones that are owning the, the, the accountability, then you have no accountability throughout the system. Everyone else in the system is now gonna be looking at mitigation and go, well, it's not me. It must be you. And if everybody's doing that, pretty soon, you can't get anywhere. And everyone's right, by the way, because that's a smaller truth. Because you did drop the ball. You know, you, did, you, you, you didn't block the guy. So, okay, then now I'm feeling good because that was what happened. And so what happens is that just spins. And until the leadership in the locker room are the ones that say, no, 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 hold on. This conflict, I own it. In the end, I'm, I'm responsible for this conflict. Then what happens, everyone else goes, well, yeah, you know what, but I dropped the ball. 
but I missed the tackle. I missed, you know, and so it feeds on itself so that people can start to get out of the finger pointing that's inevitable about a truth. It did happen. But that's not what we want to focus on. We want to focus on something that's larger, which is a solution. And the only way through that solution is accountability, so that there can be a conversation around accountability. Otherwise, everyone ends up in the you know, opposite sides of the locker room, and they're both right in their minds. And all they do is throw bombs back at each other. And pretty soon, the divisiveness in the locker room becomes toxic. I think that conflict, especially in locker rooms, it, it, a lot of the conflict is creative. Like I said, it's an opportunity. And creative tension, I think, is some of the greatest growth in our lives. But there's this subtle, very, not even semantic, but a subtle difference between creative tension and toxic tension. And when it goes toxic, it's usually around mitigation, or usually about non-accountability, and everyone's on a different side. It becomes toxic because there's no, there's no solving anymore. The opportunity's lost. And then now you have to do the really hard work of healing. And um, locker rooms that are broken uh, and have no way forward to heal, they, everyone just, that's what happens, everyone just builds a fort, right? It's like, our side of the locker room is right, and so we're gonna sit here with our fort, and then those idiots over there, let's see, how do we get them out? Yep. They need to leave, because we can't survive and, do, and thrive unless they go. And so that guy, that guy's toxic. He needs to, he needs to go. And uh, this, this player, he's toxic, he needs to go. And we go to management. Now we want people to come in and solve our problems. Can you get rid of this guy? Because when this guy's gone, we can do well. And inevitably, that guy goes and you still haven't solved anything. And so I just, the locker room is the great truth. <laughs> like, you can see the metaphors work everywhere. But the locker room, to me, is this beautiful opportunity for, for coming together. Because if, uh, last thing I'll say, I get going, you guys, I'm sorry. But don't walk why we ask you to come. <laughs> But Bill Walsh, my first coach um, for the 49ers, the first time that when players came together uh, for training camp, he'd bring them all together in, a, in an evening meeting, just like this, similar, and he'd stand up and he'd say, look, I want you all to develop an element of love for each other. This season will fall or rise on the, on the extent that you're willing to give grace to each other. So he started the conference like football. You know, I've never heard anyone talk like that in my life. And we're like, we all chuckle, like, we have to love each other. Oh, you know? <laughs> uh, but what he said is in the locker room, in the planes, in the hotels, in the buses, you know, you know anywhere that, in the lunchroom, I want you to sit and speak to people that you don't know. Because in this football team, inevitably, you can play 10 years together. And if you don't do that, you will not on purpose, but just in comfort, Look at somebody that you played for the 10 years and never actually sit with them. You'll know their name because it's on the back of their jersey. But that's about the extent of the relationship. I want you to commune with us, shared common experiences with each other. And in those shared common experiences, you'll get to see each other and develop a relationship because when we're in Lambeau Field in Green Bay and we're down by four points and there's a minute and a half left and it's third and 10, I want them and it's raining in 31 degrees, I don't know how that's possible. You've never been colder or wetter in your life. You get in a huddle, you just described it, you get in a huddle, and I want you to look across the huddle and see somebody that you have a relationship with. And in that relationship is why we're going to win. And so you think the 49ers for 20 years was in the playoffs every year. Five Super Bowls and 10, 12 championship games, why? Not because of 
players or the plays, it was because of this fundamental principle that ruled in our locker room so that we didn't get into this terrible space because there's conflicts. Oh my gosh, the conflicts. <laughs> Woo! I mean, there was some stuff that was super heavy, but we worked through it. And I think that's why we were so strong. Sorry, I'm done. done. <laughs> no, no, that's, thank you. That's really good. Thank you. So see, this, this is exactly the, the stuff that we want to talk about. The, the, the fact that, uh, as you said, kind of the locker room is a microcosm for life, right? It, everything's so intense, it's short, but, but the examples that you can take from that. So um, you and I first met uh, several years ago, really kind of bonding over conflict. I think conflict, in uh, uh, political conflict, uh, religious conflict, societal conflict. Uh, we're um, it, it, talking a lot about Disagree Better, this national initiative that, that we're running. I love that. And when you told me that, was, we were in the truck. We were in Cedar City. We were, we were, <laughs> we were here together exactly talking right. about that. And so, look, you have, unlike too many football players, uh, you, you've had enormous success post your football career. Um, you've you've uh, developed a business career as well. Um, Abby's going to get to family in a second, but I do want to talk about the boardroom. Um, we talked about the locker room. Let's talk about the boardroom. Uh, there's, there's certainly, as I, as I hear from uh, CEOs all across the state and all across the country, really, as we're talking about this political conflict, this, this toxic conflict, you use toxic as well, we use that a lot, um, the difference between healthy conflict and toxic conflict. I hear from CEOs saying, yeah, we're seeing this in, in, in our Slack channels, boardrooms, uh, everything's become politicized, yeah. we're, we're tearing each other apart, if, if we don't support this cause, then half our company's mad at us, if we do support this cause, then the other half is mad at us. Um, so we're, we're seeing the, the opportunities for success in business are, have never been greater, and yet, and yet conflict exists there as well. Could you, could you share any experiences or stories or thoughts on, on what you've seen in the boardroom as, as your second career is really Well, first of all, uh, your divisiveness is inevitable. In other words, that's the world we live in. We live in a zero-sum game world. It's like, you know, by the sweat of your brow every day. Like that, that's, how, that's the conditions that we live in. And so left alone, left without pushing the rock, metaphorical rock uphill, constantly, we'll be down at the bottom of the hill in this state. That's just where you go. So we shouldn't think it's unnatural, it's very natural to end up here. But it's not where we want to be. And so that's the point, it's like, you know, we're, you know, we're divided, we're divided, we're like, okay, great. Like, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's the easiest thing in the world. The hardest thing in the world is to push the rock uphill. And so in business, you know, it's fun for me because now I have these principles that I learned in football. I learned them from my coaches, from my theology. And I'm like, I'm, they're all kind of melding together and kind of making one thing that makes a lot of sense to me. And, uh, and so then I can now see interactions, no matter where they are. Uh, we, we partnered in business, my private equity firm, we partnered in a business that uh, the founder had built this from scratch. And he had run it for 25 years and done a great job. I mean, amazing. And he, we partnered over the basic philosophy that he'd run its course and he was gonna now become the chairman and, and we're gonna go find a CEO together. So we did that. So the CEO, we found together, we got him empowered, he's in the, you know, he's in the room and he calls me about a month later into the seat. Jerry, he's roaming the halls, he's like, I, you know, he's talking to everybody, he's like, I, no one's listening to me, like, we, it doesn't work. And, so I called Jerry, Jerry, you're the, you're the chairman now, you can't. He goes, why, well, I can't, 
I just want to see the world. You know, I just, I'm not trying to cause any problems. I just want to, you know. And I'm like, well, you understand, you have, you're larger than life. And what you do, and they're, they're wondering what, and they don't know who to say, who's in charge. He goes, oh, that's crazy. I'm going, just try, you know. <laughs> so he, he tries. And about three months later, the CEO, the new CEO that's been down there three months, says, look, it's me or him. You know, he needs to go, I need to go, it's not working. So I called Jerry, Jerry. And we're in, a, we're in one of the conference rooms in the, in the, in the office. And I meet him at the office and, he's, and I'm explaining that, look, you can't, it's not working. You know, you can't do it. And he was so upset that he picked up a chair and threw it. And I think he meant Bobby, Bobby Knight style? <laughs> I don't know, I'm shortening the story, but he got so worked up and so frustrated and so mad and blah, blah, that he threw his chair and, and I think he tried to throw it at me. But it was such a weak attempt, you know? And I'm like, did you? I, so he did it. I'm like, Jerry, did you just try to throw that chair at me? That is weak, you know? <laughs> you could see someone like, he just kind of chuckled. It's like, yeah, I know, I try. I'm not sure what I did. There was a moment there where we both could have, I mean, we could have fought, you know? But there's a moment where I could see how hard this business was, his life. This is what everything, and he poured himself into it. And we all know how hard it is, even, even if those have experienced it, to build a business and to how, you know, and how much it becomes your, if you have three children, it's your fourth child, you know, it's like, it's family. And so I said, Jerry, I get a sense that, that this is so emotional because it's so much a part of you. And this has got to be super painful. And I think we ought to just make space for that. Like the pain is brutal. And he thought about it and he goes, you know, Steve, you're right. I need to go. Will you buy, because we partners with him and he had reinvested with us. He goes, can you buy me out? I need to go. Right there on that spot. And I said, I'd be honored to do that because I think that's a way forward. And we did that. And now he'll call me from, he's, he's become a sailing aficionado. He's sailing around the world. You know, and he's calls me from Gibraltar. He's like, Steve, I'm in Gibraltar, I got a picture, you know? And he's never been happier because he had to go through, and that could have been a disaster, right? It could have taken the business down, it could have taken him down, it could have, you know, you, you see all those things, but it just taking that space, and I think in many ways seeing the pain and the anguish of what he was going through rather than him just being in the way. And I think that's just kind of a small little example of what we're talking about. Like, what is the conflict and what is the solution? Because the solution is so valuable and, and, and that's, if we're gonna be a pluralistic society and be and thrive and have abundance, this is it. If you're gonna sit on the other side and just in the locker room and point at other people, yeah, welcome to the world. Yeah, that you're at the bottom of the hill, right where everyone ends up, fine. And you might win. You might, beat, you, might, you might beat the other side, make them a loser, but it's never, it's never lasting. Because now there's gonna be another fight the other way and then they'll win, and then you're like, well that doesn't last. And then you just go back, like this is, this is caveman stuff, right? Like we're just, come on, we're, 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 we're above it. But, it's, but I also wanna recognize that we understand how we got, or how we get here. We get here because it's natural. It feels actually natural, it actually feels like Oh yeah, you did, huh. and then now all of a sudden everything devolves. And that's why I love the locker room, 
and the idea of conflict because it, uh, it's very obvious to me when I see it and I try to avoid it. But I want to know, I'm, I'm on the journey with all of you. I'm, you know, I got in conflict with one of my kids yesterday and it was because my way is right and they don't understand because they're young and if they, if they understood, they would know better and they would choose differently. And then in the conversation, very patiently, my child turns to me and says, I don't think you understand. And after, through the conversation, I have to realize, oh my, I, I didn't understand. I did not know that that's how you were. And then all of a sudden there's the, the humility of it all. Like, oh my gosh, there's, there it is, and just yesterday. So we're all, you push up the rock uphill, if you quit pushing up the hill, what happens? The rock goes to the bottom of the hill. So you have to, like, the metaphor works because you have to kind of do it every day. It has to be intentional. And so if we're gonna, if we're gonna solve things, it has to be intentional and it has to be, you know, and I will say it doesn't have to be bilateral. It works best if it's bilateral. But I find that if my intent is to heal, to have the state of being in long suffering and gentle persuasion and meekness and love, if that's my intent, it might be rejected, but I, I have this piece about that effort. So I think even if it's not, even, you know, maybe thrown, someone throws the bomb back, I'm like, all right, I'm still, my, my intent doesn't change. I think that's important too, because we don't write, because then it becomes transactional. Oh, I'll try if you try, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'll come a little bit if you come even further, and then you know, you're just making deals and that'll fail too, so. Well, I love talking about relationships. I think relationships are, are the key to all of this. You talked about the relationships, um, the meaningful relationships in the locker room. You talk about your meaningful relationships with those in the boardroom and people that you, that you love and work with every day. Um, I think for all of us, I would, I would go out on a limb and say that all of us that are family relationships are the most important relationships we have in our lives. Um, and, and, and the hardest and the the absolute hardest, especially uh, I think as a parent, um, and we're, we have four kids, you have kids. Um, we're kind of in the, we're in similar phases. I think we have some adult children that are making some tough decisions about life and we, we have conflict. I know this will come as a shock, but we have conflict in our families, even political conflict sometimes in our families. How do you, how have you worked through some of that conflict? You talked a little bit about, you know, listening to, to your child and, and really being able to reflect that back to them. What other ways um, can we, uh, in our families, think about how these relationships and how important they are, how do we deal with conflict in our families? Uh, fundamentally, I think for me is to recognize that all that I know, all that I know, know, like that I'm sure of, that tells me that you should follow me, um, is very carefully has to be put aside. Because what happens is, I'm pretty, I'm sure of this, and if you'll follow me, we'll be fine. And if you'll just come with me, it'll, it'll work. And what I'm saying is, you're wrong and I'm right. And your journey is, needs to be my journey. 
because my journey's right, because I wouldn't be here if I didn't think it was right. So come with me, because if you'll follow me, we'll be good. And then the fundamental recognition through parenting that has been beaten down to me to realize that their journey does not necessarily have to be my, my journey. And then in fact, I can learn from a different journey. And I'm actually enriched. Mine is enriched by yours. And I'm really grateful that I did not raise, my, my, kids, my boys did not play football. They were not interested in sports. I did not raise myself. Raising myself, I would have been great at. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, did. I would have owned that one. <laughs> All pro, you know? But raising not myself has been the greatest challenge and reward of my life because I've recognized that the journeys are, are individual and enriching and I need to, what I need to focus on again is making sure that the space that I give is to heal and to love and to honor and model. I don't, I'm not giving an inch on the modeling. Qualities that I truly believe in, I'm gonna model every day. So that as you see me, the journey that you're on and you see what I'm, what I'm modeling, and you see that attractiveness in the invitation, come on over for that, that portion. Because what I'm modeling is something that is the deepest part of myself. And if I'm not modeling it, if I'm not behaving as I would want to, someone to be, then I'm not, that's my, the only, the biggest job I have in parenting at this point is to model. That's the, that's the job. Because I could win, and because I'm strong and forceful, I could probably get people to come along. But I don't know that I'd actually keep them, long term. Yep. Might be for a while. But in modeling, they can see, oh, that quality is something that I want in my life. And I'm so grateful for, for the model. Because that's really the only, that's a superpower parenting, is modeling. And I just, that's why I want, I mean, I find myself, you know, every parent has moments, right? You have these moments, and I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm going, because it's in the frustration and the anger and the, and the struggle is where I need to be the mo that's where the modeling really matters. When things are great, and I'm funny, Steve, you know, I'm like, oh, you're so funny and so happy and so great. It's like, yeah, I'm, oh, I want a great model of happiness and goodness I am. It's those moments when I'm stretched and when I'm frustrated and I'm right uh, that I find myself as the, I said, man, in conflict is the opportunity. At the, at the stretching, at the places where I'm extended, is the modeling, that's where the modeling is the most vital and, and impactful and, uh, and, and meaningful. And so I just, I guess I watch for those. I don't, I don't invite them. I don't say, oh, I can't wait to get stretched again, you know? But when it, I can smell it, I can feel it coming, I was like, okay, see, this is when, this is game time. This is, I, everything's football for me. This is game time. This is third and 10. Like, this is, this is the moment when the modeling really, really matters. I love that. Um, 
Steve, we've got about five minutes left for the, uh, for the audience here. Um, obviously, I want you to have the last word when it comes to leadership and conflict. But speaking of conflict, we, uh, we have something in Utah that we affectionately refer to not just as a well, war. Well, don't act like I'm not a Utah. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on, man. No, 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 no. You misunderstood the question. <laughs> All the people that you can't. Can. You can't other me on this one. <laughs> You've you, you got to hear the rest of the question, okay? okay? So we, we have this thing in Utah that, that we don't just refer to as a war in conflict. We refer to it as a holy war. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. So this is where I'm bringing you I in now. I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Uh, okay. So um, na- starting next That's year. That's like this red one Utah thing was. <laughs> I, I it really got you. That's why you got your blue, you got your blue on today. So blue on. You got it. Again. Again, an opportunity, right? <laughs> I can't stand when people sit on the other side and throw bombs at each other. It's stupid. It is one you thought. I just wouldn't mind a little blue in <laughs> We adopted SUU colors for your friend Mindy Benson. Well, I'm so, totally on that. This is my SUU friend. red. It's not I'm Utah red. I don't know I'm what I'm up for all of it. I'm up for, I was born. My dad was in law school at the U when I was born. I lived on campus and campus housing for the first three years, I went fell down the stairs and almost died in campus housing on the U. So I, I have, I have That's why you left. I, know, I, have, I was in one of those walking stroller things where mom's chasing down the stairs. Uh, and going down. I popped right up. The worst said, feeling of a mother. That's when they knew. That was the beginning. Like my first big athletic moment was at the U. Also, doesn't even need a helmet for that. <laughs> Sadly, also your first concussion, but let's uh, leave it. We're headed back. The Big 12. Where uh, are we going? The Big 12. Utah and BYU, uh, back together again. I just, just uh, again, just for people, your thoughts on, on that rivalry coming back. I love it, and I also love how it happened. That BYU stayed around and found a way to find a home, and then and they and, and then they have the home, and then the Pac-12 kind of disintegrates, and the U needs a home, and the vote comes up, and what does BYU do? Oh yeah, they're our neighbors. They come with us, and so I just I love the spirit of that, and so um, and I'm, and I love that that's then I do love that that's because another conflict, which is in opportunity. Right? How can we find, because my, my, my dear friend Ronnie Lott, all Hall of Fame safety who played for many years with the 49ers, was one of the great leaders of all time. And he used to talk about conflict or competition as a sacred space. And he said, Steve, because anyone who ever kind of cat called another guy on another team or made fun of them after a loss or something, he would go crazy. Because he said, if you don't honor the space of winners and losers, then we can't learn. We can't find the full measure of it. If the loser can't go and find the full measure of what that means to them and how they're going to improve, and the winner uses it as a weapon to not learn in the, in the glory of the moment, then we shouldn't compete. Because competition in its core is going to devolve or it could be something abundant. And I was like, again, here's this football player teaching me this fundamental concept around competition that it can be abundant, but you've got to guard it. And I say the same thing about BYU-Utah. There's incredible, great competition. It can be toxic, but we need creative tension that we honor each other in the competition. And then we can end it without becoming toxic. That's just such an example of what I see sometimes, not often, but sometimes in the 
in the rhetoric. I'm like, stop, because you're actually heading back to the bottom of the hill, and I don't want to live there. I hate the bottom of the hill. The bottom of the hill is where the cavemen were. Let's go back up to the top. Let's go. So. Now, this is this idea. I'm fascinated. Of, you know, we always would say, don't be a sore loser, right? You hear that all the time. And now we kind of celebrate sore losers, unfortunately, in our country. Um, but, uh, but, but also, we, we celebrate sore winners, and, and there's no grace in, yeah. in victory. Ronnie Lott is not like that. Ronnie Lott is not. And <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to mess with Ronnie Lott. You do not want to mess with Ronnie Lott, so I, I did My brother had a Ronnie Lott poster in his bedroom. So. <laughs> and Abby had a Steve Young poster in her bedroom. Right Perhaps. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny. Full <laughs> circle. We're going to talk about the pink socks later, though, so it may, it may have ruined that, that image. I don't know. You know what? It's a classic. I'm going to tell my wife this. She goes, you're so classic. You know? So you never know what you're doing. I'm like, I know. An idiot savant. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's perfect, Steve. Um, uh, one minute left. Um, anything you'd like to tell? We have, a, we have amazing leaders here from all over rural Utah, business leaders, uh, elected leaders, community leaders, education leaders. What's, what's the last message you would like them to hear today? I'm personally honored that you have me in. Abby, thank you. Governor, I appreciate you. Um, I, I'm, I'm on the journey, too. I'm, I, everything I said, I sit back to myself on the loop all the time. Um, there is abundance in this crazy world. There is, um, there is profitability. There is, there, there is abundance in competition. There is an abundance in conflict. We just gotta find it. And I, I really, and people are gonna, again, you can be cynical. Cynical is not productive. Critical is fine. It's productive. Cynical, that's when things go haywire. And it's easy. The easiest places to be are at the bottom of the hill in cynicism, in retribution, in divisiveness, in finger pointing, in my truth that I'm right. You know, it's like, fine. But how about, how about, and if Utah, you had the vision for trying to lead this conversation, how about if we could raise the level of the conversation? And again, I think it's states of being. People say, what, okay, Steve, great, what do I do? And I would say, there's nothing to do. There's things to be. And there's a language of it. What's the language of abundance in a conflicted situation? And then stay with it. And, and, and soak it in and try to live it every day as, in, as intentionally as you can. I just, I promise you, from my personal experience, that's when I get the greatest measure of heaven. That's when I get the greatest measure of my own foibles and the, and the mistakes. And it's where I have the greatest learning. So if we're here on this crazy planet to learn and grow, let's get to it. Because we're not going to learn and grow at the bottom of the hill. We're just not. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest ever wear the uniform. <laughs>